How much rehearsal did that particular show take? From the, the end of the, you finished one broadcast, what did it take to get the next Gildersleeve broadcast on? We uh, would go it there. It started on Sundays, I believe. Was well, we Sunday would, afternoon yes, initially? but we would go there perhaps Friday mm -hmm. and work with the show, and sometimes the different parts would have to be changed. And we worked not many, too many hours. And by the way, we were sitting on that stage when uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed. Oh, you were? Mm -hmm. And we were sitting there when the president's voice came over declaring war. And after that, we couldn't travel nights with any lights on our cars. Uh, it must have been quite an impact at it that time. Was. It was. It, it, it certainly must have put a damper on your spirits at the beginning of that rehearsal period or whatever. It was yeah. quite a frightening yeah. thing. But however, we didn't realize the enormity of this thing mm -hmm. until maybe weeks later. We didn't know what was going to happen and why it was happening. Saturday, March 4th, 1944, New York City. A cold drizzle has people rushing to get indoors. But that's nothing compared to the bombs and bullets American men and women are dodging overseas. On Wednesday, March 1st in Papua New Guinea, the Battle of Sio ended in an Allied victory. That same day, the Vatican was bombed for the second time during the war, while a massive strike began in the Italian Social Republic. Citizens resented having to produce war materials for Germans. The next day, Joseph Stalin rejected British proposals to negotiate over the Polish-Soviet border, while a night attack by the Japanese on Los Negros was repelled by the Americans. On Anzio's beachhead, the 3rd Infantry Division fought off a German counterattack in Ponte Roto, and a women's protest in Rome ended tragically when the pregnant Teresa Gulasse was killed by a German soldier for trying to pass a sandwich to her imprisoned husband. On this day, March 4th, the second Narva offensive ended in a German victory, while China and Afghanistan signed a treaty of friendship. At 1.45 p.m. Eastern Wartime, NBC's War Telescope took to the air over WEAF in New York with stories about the men and women on the front lines and their disconnect with the average American citizen at home. From London, the National Broadcasting Company presents War Telescope with John McVeigh of NBC's London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. For his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is John McVeigh in London. The recent reports reaching here from America again seem to emphasize certain differences between frontline troops who are doing the fighting and at least some of the politicians and other people at home. Later in this broadcast, you'll be hearing something of an episode in the life of a man of the front line, a naval flyer. Yet I wonder whether anyone who has not undergone his experience can understand it completely. The reports that I mentioned indicate one great danger to American national life that people at home will shut their eyes to the fact that any sacrifice they can make can never be as great as the sacrifice of the frontline soldier when he risks his life. Once convinced the soldier, who at this moment stands in danger of death on the Italian front or in the air over Germany, that people at home do not realize how much he's been through, and you formed at least one basis for post-war disunity within the country. Two days after this broadcast, the Red Army began the Uman Bodosani offensive while taking two Ukrainian cities. On Monday the 6th, American heavy bombers mounted their first ever full-scale daylight raid on Berlin, while multiple German submarines were sunk by Allied warships. The day of a full-scale European invasion was coming. He knows only the general outlines of some of the main news from home. What he's heard from home in these past few weeks hasn't been news of a kind calculated to instill him with any enthusiasm for the tribulations of the home front. Lowe's cartoon may well describe the general impression of an American soldier who heard only the bald fact that Congress, by a rousing majority, decided to call on the nation to pay only a small fraction of the war expenses. As far as the soldier knows, the reason was that Congress didn't like paying for the war because it was the president's idea. As far as one can determine, the average American soldier in active service 
does not approve strikes by labor. Neither does he approve a congressional policy of no control of prices and salaries. Complaints about high taxes and demands for higher salaries are apt to leave the soldier, living on sea rations in a cold foxhole that's under shell fire, comparatively unmoved. He knows what his salary is going to be for some time to come, provided he lives long enough to spend it. But that's not exactly why we're here. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we're going to focus on a show that between February and March of 1944 pulled a rating of 19 points. This made it the most listened to show airing at 6.30 p.m. in radio history. The show was also the first spin-off situation comedy ever. One could know the title character by his singular laugh. The show was The Great Gildersleeve. Reports that some senator or other is working himself into a lather about American air bases all over the world, oil pipelines in Arabia, and similar subjects. Occasionally, he may read in his local paper a blast against America's allies, Russia and Britain. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 149. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we'll spend March of 1944 with Hal Peary and the Great Gildersleeve. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Jimmy Dorsey's Besame Mucho, featuring vocals by Bob Eberly and Kitty Callen. This song hit number one on the Billboard singles charts Saturday, March 4th, 1944, as people were tuning in to NBC's War Telescope. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash group slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Chicago, I used to do seven voices on the Tom Mix Ralston Straight Shooter Show, uh-huh. which a lot of people don't know about, I guess. That was way back in 37, 38, and 39. Well, you once played Sheriff Mike Shaw on that show, well, didn't I did, you? Uh, I did Mike Shaw on a voice like that, and I did an Englishman on a voice like that. <laughs> and I did uh, Henry Akins, who was a town banker, in a voice like that. And I did Hawk Barrett, who was a villain. And I also did Hog Barrett's brother, who was named Shotgun Barrett, in the same voice, except he had a lift. <laughs> and then, of course, I did Lee Lu, the Chinese cook. Well, you are. That was seven. You so are. I did, I did chief, an Indian chief, also. Yeah, and then when I left in '39 to come here with Fibber McGee and Molly, why there were four or five fellows that took over the parts, including a chap of the name of Forrest Lewis, who did very well in several characters, including one called Wash. Hal Peary was born Harold Jose de Faria to Portuguese parents on July 25, 1908. He was 14 when, in January of 1923, he made his radio debut on KZM in Oakland. By the late 1920s, he was working for NBC in San Francisco. Migrating to Chicago in 1937, he soon became one of radio's insiders, gaining a reputation as a top utility man. In 1937, he joined the cast of Fibber, McGee, and Molly, playing every kind of bit part imaginable. I did several things. The first thing I ever did there was an Italian father, and that's how I happened to get on the show. There was somebody in an orchestra that used to play the part, and he was snowbound or something (laughs) up in Wisconsin, couldn't make Uh it. And I had worked with Marion and Jim Jordan on Colton Myers' Kindergarten, which Uh is a show they used to do even after they did Fibber McGee. They loved doing it. Mm -hmm. And I did this Italian father, and then I... Stayed on the show and did, uh, oh, a number of parts. Gooey Fooey, a laundryman, George Fiditch, 
kind of an insurance salesman. Were you gooey-fooey? I was surprised to know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I did a character, Perry, the Portuguese piccolo player in Ted Weems' band. That's when <laughs> Perry Como was still in the band. Uh-huh. Took over the part that an actor by the name of Tom Post had played. It, mm-hmm. He was the Mayor Appleby, and McGee called him Mayor Applepuss, you know. Uh-huh. I played George Gildersleeve first. Then Harry Gildersleeve. And I, I heard one program that you're Homer Gildersleeve. Yeah. <laughs> Don Quinn loved the name Gildersleeves. He tried out several things. Oh, you, I have another show where you were an interior decorator. Yes. An Italian wrestler. <laughs> I remember that. We had a lot of fun on the show. Actually, I had played the voice, but he mm-hmm. wasn't born until Molly became quite ill. Mm-hmm. And she was off the show for a few months. And then they kind of pumped up all the smaller parts, like myself and things that Bill Thompson did, and suddenly we were very important to the show. Well, they gave the Gildersleeve character an opportunity, and I threw in that laugh one night that I had never used on the show, and that was it. In the late 1930s, Peary approached McGee's head writer, Don Quinn, with an idea for a recurring role. He wanted to play a pompous windbag, who himself ran the biggest bluff in Wistful Vista. He thought it would be the perfect foil for McGee. Quinn was the kind of man who innately understood how to write for radio. To get back to that other thing I was talking about, the theory of the actor inspiring the writer, have any things that he has done, any treatments that he has given the part ever inspired you, given you an idea for some future? Well, any, any writer or any producer who ignores an actor's suggestions is an idiot because they have some very valuable contributions to make. They know what they want to say and how they're going to say it. And the, the best radio writing is done for certain talents and for certain people, tailored to their delivery. Everyone on our show is free to submit ideas and they all take advantage of it. They all submit them and we listen very respectfully to them. For Quinn, it was simply a matter of creating Throckmorton Gildersleeve, moving him to 83 Wistful Vista and letting the fur fly. Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve's first appearance was on September 26, 1939. That, mm-hmm. See, after they called the character Throckmorton, then uh-huh. I moved in next door. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And you remember, I was his neighbor, uh-huh. and, and I, I even had a wife on the show, but she was never heard. She was oh. only talked about. Did know? she have a name? Molly just occasionally said, oh, there's Mrs. Gildersleeve. Oh, Mrs. Gildersleeve, I see. I and see. that was about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that when I made the transition from my own show and became a bachelor, I don't think I even had one letter asking, what happened to your wife? Because <laughs> she, no one ever had ever heard of her. Quinn knew the value of sarcasm in comedy. It was later revealed that Gildersleeve's middle name was Philharmonic. Well, radio writing is a highly competitive business, and it's a great strain during the broadcasting season. When vacation time comes along, it's highly welcome. Anything you can do to relax is all to the good, and there is nothing like a trip to Hawaii in this direction. <laughs> That's so true. You know, in this business, very often the question is, from what profession do you come? How did you get into radio? How about with you, Mr. Quinn? I came from the ranks of commercial cartooning, which in 1929 and 30 laid, as Variety says, a big egg. I had been giving jokes to a radio comedian around Chicago named Jim Jordan, who is now Fever McGee. Yeah. They asked me if I would write a show for them called Smack Out, which was a rural community country store skit. And I wrote this for four years, a country store, rural thing, without ever having been off the city streets. So you can see I'm a fraud all the way along here, writing a college show with no education, and as a city boy writing a country show. Fever McGee and Molly stemmed from that country uh-huh. store skit, because we featured tall stories. This is why we called him Fever McGee. Oh, I see. Uh, that's where the name Fever came from. Yeah. And that's how you came to start writing that script. Yes. I neglected to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that Mr. Quinn did, of course, also originate Fibber, McGee, and Molly and wrote it for many, many years. Seventeen, to be exact. Seventeen, really. Yes. By 1941, the character proved so popular that it was decided to spin Gildersleeve off into its own show. An audition was recorded on May 16th. Peary's last regular appearance on Fibber, McGee, and Molly was on June 24th in a memorable scene. McGee and Molly are headed to Hollywood for the summer. And furthermore, Gildersleeve, that's the silliest idea I ever heard of. Well, by George McGee, if you weren't well, so thick... what is Mr. Gildersleeve's idea, McGee? He says we ought to... What we ought to do is have somebody live in this house while we're gone. 
Ain't that dumb. Well, I don't know if I thought we could sublet it to the right people. Well, I didn't exactly mean sublet, Mrs. McGee. I had more in mind the care of your house. Oh. Imagine coming back in the fall to a nice clean house. Windows washed. Furniture all Johnson's waxed and polished. Shelves cleaned. Wouldn't that be worth more than any petty little sum you might get for rent? Well, it almost is to me, Mr. Gildersleeve. I wonder who we could get, though. Well, uh... <laughs> It just happens that my wife's brother and his family are going to be here all summer, and I thought... Oh, oh no, you <laughs> Trying to chisel some free lodging for your relatives, eh, Gildersleeve? Well... Well, you can just keep the visiting fireman on your own hook and ladder. <laughs> now, McGee, I don't think Mr. Gildersleeve meant... That's anything. all right, Mrs. McGee. I'm not angry. I won't see my little chum until last week in September, and I refuse to quarrel with him. <laughs> My goodness, I'll miss you, little pal. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, shucks. The Spanish serenader's coming out in him. <laughs> what are you get... after, anyway, Gildersleeve? The use of our lawnmower for the summer? What did you say? I said, what are you after? The use of our lawnmower for the summer or something? In the first place, it isn't your lawnmower. It's mine. And in the second what place... What do you mean, it's your lawnmower? Just because I let you borrow it once or twice. That's all right, McGee. I was glad to get it back, if only for a day or so. He's right, McGee. It is his lawnmower. Oh, yeah? It's my lawnmower, and I can prove it. I know exactly where the bill of sale is. Where? Right here in the hall closet. <laughs> I straightened it out this morning, dear. <laughs> Well, where's that bill of sale? Okay, so it's your lawnmower. Take your old clover clipper, Gildersleeve. I'm a movie actor now anyway. I ain't mowing my own lawn anymore. You're not, eh? <laughs> you probably will be too busy at that. Yes. Mowing other people's lawns. <laughs> you don't seem to have much faith in McGee's future in Hollywood, Mr. Gildersleeve. Mrs. McGee, if all his fans were gathered in one spot, yes. they wouldn't make enough breeze to ruffle baby Sandy's hair ribbon. <laughs> you wait, Gildersleeve. You'll be reading in the papers about me. Hometown boy makes good. Read the rest of it, McGee. Huh? Hometown boy makes good time hitchhiking home from coast. <laughs> now you look here, you All people. right, boys, that's enough. Do you realize we only have a few minutes to catch our train, dearie? Oh, boy, that's right. Uh, go on home, Gildersleeve. Can't you see you're holding us up? That's all right. If I have to pay more than a dime to see you in the movies, you'll be holding me up. <laughs> have a nice trip, Mrs. McGee. Oh, thank you, Mr. Gildersleeve, uh, and goodbye. Goodbye, little chum. So long, Trucky. <laughs> Oddly enough, by the time they got back, it was Gildersleeve who'd permanently departed from Wistful Vista. Tragically, Gildersleeve's sister and brother-in-law were killed in a car accident, and he needed to go to Summerfield to oversee their estate and raise his orphan niece and nephew, Marjorie and Leroy Forrester. He left on August 8, 1941, creating with him a new American concept, the sitcom spin-off. The show premiered at 2.30 p.m. Pacific time over KFI in Los Angeles, and 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, over WEAF in New York. Kraft would sponsor the series. They signed on for 39 weeks over 28 NBC Red Network stations. Kraft presents The Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. Each week at this time, the Kraft Cheese Company presents for your enjoyment, Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. We'll hear from the Great Gildersleeve in just a moment. But right now, here's a message of very great importance for today's menu makers. I don't know how much you housewives actually know about modern margarine, but there's probably been no time in the history of America when it was so important for you to have the true facts about nourishing wholesome foods for your family. So I want to tell you about Parquet. Parquet is the new quality margarine made by Kraft, a delicious spread for bread, hot rolls, and toast. Now, of course, the fact that Parquet does taste so good probably accounts for its popularity as a spread in millions of homes. But this is even more important. Parquet margarine is a protective food with exceptionally high nutritional value. It is one of the best energy foods you can serve and a reliable year-round source of vitamin A. There are 9,000 units of this vitamin in every pound of Parquet. So tomorrow, ask your food dealer for a pound of Parquet margarine 
made by Kraft. The whole family will like it because it tastes so good, and you'll know that you're giving them an economical, highly nutritious food made to the Kraft standards of quality. Just say Parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y. And now for the adventures of the great Gildersleeve. Where Pippa McGee and Molly live? Yes, madam. Oh, my. Do you think I'll be able to see them from the train window? No, lady. The McGees are on their vacation. Oh. But say, there's a next-door neighbor of theirs, Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. Where? Where? That portly gent with the mustache on the platform, the one making a speech to his employees. How do you know they're his employees? Because every time he goes away, he gives them an hour off to come down to the station and wave goodbye. Oh, so that's Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, I can't tell you how touched I am to see all the employees of the Gildersleeve Girdle Works down here at the station to bid me goodbye. <laughs> it's indeed... Uh, by the way, is there anyone left at the plant? Uh, well, uh, no. What if some orders come in? Who'll take the phone calls? Uh, Mert. Oh, Mert, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As I was saying while I'm away, I expect every one of you to uphold Gildersleeve Girdles to the best of your ability. <laughs> and don't forget our motto. If you want the best of corsets... Of course, it's Gildersleeve. <laughs> Very good, T.P., Very good. Thank you, thank you. You'll get a raise. <laughs> and though it's necessary for me to go away and attend to other enterprises, the one thing closest to my heart is the Gildersleeve girdle. How long will you be gone, T.P.? At least three days, and maybe till the end of the week. Oh, <laughs> uh, before you go, T.P., the Gildersleeve Girdle Workers Guild wishes to present you with this handsome leather briefcase as a token of our esteem for you. Yes. Yes. For me? I don't know what to say all except... Aboard. Yes, all aboard? Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Out of my way, everybody. Where are my bags? On the train, T.P. Thanks. I forgot to buy a ticket. Where do I buy a ticket? On the train, T.P. Oh, yes. Let go of me, boys. Where are you pushing me? On the train, T.P. Yes. Goodbye, children. Goodbye, children. your ticket, Mr. Gildersleeve. Sorry I haven't any berths left. Uh, couldn't you squeeze me in somewhere? I'll try, though it'll probably be a tight squeeze. <laughs> yeah, tight squeeze. <laughs> Side-splitting, isn't it? Going to be in Summerfield long? Oh, no, just three or four days. I'm taking over the administration of my brother-in-law's estate. They're going to run it for my niece and nephew. Yeah, but that's quite involved, and I'm hungry. Which way is the diner? Why, an old, experienced traveler like you should know where the diner is. Huh? Oh, of course. No matter where you are, the diner's always at the other end of the train. <laughs> See you later. Excuse me, madam. <laughs> yes, pretty crowded in this diner. By George, I'm so hungry I could eat the waiter. Yes, sir. Is it all right if I sit at this table? Yes, sir. Sit right down, sir. If this gentleman doesn't mind reading his paper on his own side. I said if this gentleman doesn't mind reading his paper on his own side. Excuse me, sir. Does you mind? Yes, I do. I'm particular whom I eat with. <laughs> you are, eh? Well, I'm not. I'm hungry. Waiter, bring me a steak. A nice, juicy double tenderloin rare. Waiter, where's my milk toast? I ordered it 15 minutes ago. Yeah. I'm sorry, but milk toast takes time, you know. And, waiter, I want a big, heaping plate of French fries. Yeah, French fries. And a cup of strong coffee with lots of cream. Yeah, I'll get it right away, sir. And bring me my milk toast made with gluten bread, remember? Yes. Bread. Oh, that reminds me. Some hot biscuits and a little pot of jam. Gluten bread toasted and a cup of hot water. Uh, and then apple pie a la mode with cheese. Yeah, with cheese. Yeah. I can't stand this. Listening to you is giving me heartburn. <laughs> yeah. It is, huh? Uh, waiter, 
Uh, don't forget the steak sauce, ketchup, piccalilli, and relish. Bring me a glass of bicarbonate of soda, quick. <laughs> yes, sir. Right away, sir. I'll be back. Of course, it's none of my business, mister. Then don't stick your nose in it. Yes. <laughs> well, all right. That's the way you feel about it. I was just going to tell you you're getting your newspaper in the mustard. I don't use mustard. No, I guess you don't need any. But what I was going to say was... Never mind, never mind, never mind. Okay, I won't say it then. That mustard from your newspaper is all over your sleeve now. I don't care. What? Oh, of all the messes I... Uh, 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 water only spreads it. <laughs> you see what they tell you? I'll thank you to mind your own business. What's the big idea of jumping down my throat? What do you expect addressing a perfect stranger? You're far from perfect, stranger. <laughs> From now on, I'm going to make a career out of ignoring you. Uh, here comes my food. That's pretty snappy service, waiter. Uh, yes, sir. Well, where's my milk toast? Yeah, I'm sorry, sir, but the chef, he's all out of glutton bread. <laughs> he wants to know would pumpernickel do just as well. No, pumpernickel wouldn't do just as well. And why keep me waiting all the time while you serve this big buffalo the minute he sits down? Huh? No, look here, mister. I don't want to look here. I'm sick of the sight of you, the idea. An overstuffed ox like you, guttling and gobbling and gorging yourself like an ostrich. <laughs> I've got a bad case of indigestion already just from looking at you. Why, you dyspeptic little dodo. Just because you're mean to your stomach and your stomach talks back to you, you bellyache. Excuse the expression. <laughs> you're not suffering from indigestion. You're just green with Epicurean envy. I won't sit here. Uh, here's your bicarbonate of soda, mister. T take it away, take it away. I need something stronger than that now. I've got some pills down here in my briefcase. Just a minute there. What are you doing with my briefcase? Your briefcase? This is mine. It is not. My employees gave it to me just this afternoon. Take your fat paws off of my briefcase before I... Before you watch, you dried up little crab apple. <laughs> Now, now, wait a minute, gentlemen, please. Let go of my briefcase. I will not. It's mine. Why, the idea is... Oh, yes, ma'am. waiter. Waiter, did you see anything of my briefcase? I left it... Oh, you gentlemen have it. Thank you so much. Well, for that... Gildersleeve's first head writer was Leonard Levinson. The character's long-running feud with Judge Hooker began right from the first train ride. Music was done by William Randolph's orchestra. Cecil Underwood produced the show, and Jim Bannon announced. Ah, there you are, Mr. Gildersleeve. I've located a berth for you at last. Oh, that's fine, Conductor. I was getting tired of sitting around here in my pajamas. Where is it? It's uh, Upper Nine in the next car. Upper Nine? Oh, my goodness. The last time I was in an upper berth was, uh, let me see, uh, 50 pounds ago. <laughs> the porter's making it up for you now. Yeah, thanks. I do hope that porter gives me a wide berth. It's a dark in here. Oh, a porter? A porter? Quiet! Oh, excuse me. Must be sleeping. Oh, porter? Yeah, sir. Have you got upper nine ready yet? Yes, but I didn't anticipate no gentlemen of such ample proportions. Yeah. Well, maybe I'd better take a ladder. Yes, I'd better take two. They're small. Well, all right. Come on. Yeah. Uh, here we are, right up there, sir. Up there? Mm. Oh, my goodness. Hold these ladders steady, Porter. Remember, if they tip, I won't. It Yes. Now be careful, mister. Train's coming to a sharp quiet pretty soon. When? Then. Oh! Hold on, mister. Let us slide. I can't hold on. I'm coming down. Look out below. Ooh. No! What hit me? Oh, my sacrilege. <laughs> yeah, mister. Let me help you up. I don't want to get up. I want to sleep. Not you, mister. The man in DARPA. He's now in the lower. And where am I? You're right here, brother. Get off of my poor stomach. Who is it? Uh? Oh, it's you. What are you doing sneaking into my berth? I'm not sneaking into your... I'm not sneaking. I'm trying to climb into bed. I'm your upstairs neighbor. <laughs> Isn't that nice? I hope that swinging shelf snaps shut on you. Oh, yeah? It's going to swing. I'll see if it swings your way. And if I land on you again, brother, 
You'll spend the rest of the night sleeping in the roadbed. Oh, quiet. Let me go to sleep. Okay, Grandpop. Unpleasant dreams. All right, Porter. Give me a leg up again, will you? Thirty-two thousand four hundred and seventy-three. Thirty-two thousand four hundred and seventy-four. Thirty-two thousand four hundred and seventy-five. Oh, my goodness. Two o'clock already and still not a wink. Yes, thirty-two thousand four hundred and seventy-six. Thirty-two thousand four hundred and seventy-eight. Oh, what's the use? There was only some way of stopping that buzzsaw down there. I can't stand this any longer. Where's that porter? I'll fix this guy. You call me, sir? Uh, yes. Would you mind getting me a drink of ice water? I can't sleep. Uh, yeah, sir. Yeah. Here's the water, mister. Uh, thank you. You needn't wait. <laughs> good night, good night, good night. Uh, good night, sir. Yes. Now, if I can hold this cup in this hand and open the lower curtain with it. Ah, I've got it. Yes. Steady now, Gildersleeve. Ready. Aim. <laughs> oh, no. What, what was that? Porter! Porter! <laughs> Shut this window, will you? It's raining right in on my face. Quiet! Can a man get any rest around here? <laughs> Radio legend Frank Nelson, then only 29, provided multiple supporting parts in this episode. Anyway, I did various things around town here. Uh, one that was very popular uh, local show was The Witch's Tales. Paula Winslow, who was another gal from out here, mm -hmm. and I did the leads in those for, oh, about two years. That was the most envied show in town at that time. Now, this was before there was any transcontinental shows out of here. Mm -hmm. Finally, I had worked for John Swallow at KFAC KFVD as an announcer, and John became the first head of NBC out here. And NBC at that time was just an office on the RKO lot, on the back lot, and we worked on sound stages initially, and then they built some sound stages strictly for radio uh, right at the end of the RKO lot. That was the beginning, and they had a show out of here called the Hollywood on the Air show, which was the RKO show. First show out of Hollywood that was transcontinental, but it was not sponsored, except that RKO, really, it was their sponsorship, in effect. I used to do everything on that. I was the announcer. I filled in as a bit actor, and then if somebody didn't show up, I played that part, too did that for about, oh, I guess about a year and a half, and then the first transcontinental show that was sponsored out of here was an original Marx Brothers show with Groucho and Chico, just the two of them in it. They were fun days, those early days. I think radio offered so much more to an actor than television does, because you could do anything that your voice would allow you to do. Uh, you weren't trapped by what you looked like, how tall you were, how old you were, or how fat you were, or anything else. You could just do anything that your voice would allow. And that let us play a great deal of varied types characters. And you didn't need any time for makeup and no, costumes. No, oh, that was nice. That, that yeah. was nice. And you read it too. Yeah. <laughs> Although that wasn't as easy as we make it sound now. Yeah. Uh, lots of times we look back and we say, "Oh boy, what a soft touch that was! How easy it was!" But it wasn't easy. It truly wasn't. You had to come into a studio, and you had to create a character in a very brief period of time, and it had to be believable at least. Mm -hmm. All those characters weren't the greatest in the world, but it kept you on your toes and it kept you working hard. We did things, uh, oh, funny things that you'd do. I remember I had a show at NBC, which is really one long block from CBS. I had it at the last studio in the hall, that is the closest studio to the CBS studios, and I would conclude that show, sign that show off, and then run out the side door. I'd have a page there. He'd have the door up, and I'd run out the side door, tear across the <laughs> Palladium lot, 
and slide through Studio A. They had a big double doors there, and they'd have that open for me, and I'd slide through to the middle of the stage and take one deep breath and say, ladies and gentlemen, from Hollywood, and open the next show. And I'll tell you, some days I thought I'll never get the words out. <laughs> Good morning, sir. He's just pulling into Summerfield. You want me to brush you off? No, I'll walk down the steps like the rest of the passengers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, Porter, you've given me such good service. Here's an order for a gilded sleeve girdle for your wife. Uh, thank you, sir. I happen to be a spinster at the moment. <laughs> But if it's all right with you, I'll put it in my hope chest. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's perfectly all right. Uh, Summerfield, eh? By George, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing Marjorie and little Leroy again. Marjorie, huh? Why can't I call them T.P. like they do down at this foundry? It isn't a foundry, Leroy. It's a... Oh, never mind. It's nothing that concerns little boys. And I'm sure that he will prefer to have you call him Uncle Throckmorton. Oh, shucks. You can't go around calling a big, tough guy who runs a steel foundry Throckmorton. It's positively degradatory. It's derogatory. Yeah, it's that, too. <laughs> Leroy... Who told you Uncle Throckmorton was in the steel business? Nah, you thought you were so smart. I saw one of his letterheads. The Gildersleeve Girder Company. Hmm? <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Gildersleeve Girder Company. Gee, he should be here by now, shouldn't he, Marjorie? Now, don't you worry, Leroy. Just as soon as his train arrives, Mr. Wills will bring him here for breakfast. Oh, I wanted to go down to the station, too. I know, but Ted has to discuss all the legal details with Uncle Throckmorton before we go to court. Say, you're getting pretty darn stuck on that Ted guy, aren't you? Why, Leroy Forrester, I am not. Ted Wills is merely our lawyer. He is not. Williams and Williams, Willies and Wills are our lawyers, and Ted's nothing but the tail end. <laughs> Well, he's young yet. You just give him time. Oh, there you go. Who oh, say, how's if I should call him Uncle Morton? Call who? Oh, Uncle Throckmorton. Well, I don't think he object to that. Wait, I can do better than that. How's this? Uncle Mort. Who's that? Uncle Mort. I'll answer it. Well, 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 I'll bet this is little Leroy. Hi, Uncle Mort. If I who? You, Uncle Mort. You don't mind if I call you Uncle Mort, do you, Uncle Mort? <laughs> no, not at all. Go right ahead. Uncle Mort, eh? <laughs> I like that. And this is Marjorie, Mr. Gildersleeve. Uh, Marjorie, eh? Uh, come here, my dear. <laughs> my, how you've grown. <laughs> Hello, Uncle Throckmorton. Let me take your hat and coat. Will you have some breakfast? Uh, no, thanks. I've already had mine on the... Well, I'll have a cup of coffee. <laughs> sit right here, Uncle. Ted, you sit over there. Oh, thanks. My, this looks wonderful. Hey, Uncle, will you take me back to Wistful Vista with you and let me work in your factory? Uh, what? Well, I didn't think you'd be interested in that sort of thing. Now, Leroy... Gee, I am, Uncle Mort. That must be some layout. I bet you make the supports for a lot of big projects there. Yeah. Uh, 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 we don't turn out anything much like uh, we sort of confine ourselves to uh, foundations. Uh, yeah. Say, I'd like to go along sometime when you install some of those foundations. I don't have them. <laughs> What did you say, young man? Oh, uh, please excuse Leroy, Uncle Mort. He's been like that ever since he found out that you own the Gildersleeve Girder Company. What? Uh, the Gildersleeve Girder? Yes. Oh, oh, yes, I see it all now. <laughs> yes, a bright boy. <laughs> Gee, Uncle, Uncle, do you ever have to 
to slug it out with any of them tough steel workers of yours? Uh, no, no, I never do. You don't, huh? Uh, oh, well, of course, uh, there have been times when I've had to put uh, more snap into their work. <laughs> yeah. Once I was so angry, I picked up a badly made uh, foundation and bounced it right off the foreman's head. <laughs> you did? Yeah. Oh. Now, Leroy, let uh, your uncle eat his breakfast. Yeah. Has some toast, Uncle Mort? Uh, no, thanks. Oh, uh, speaking of toast reminds me of an amusing incident on the train last night. Uh, you'll enjoy this, Leroy. When I went into the diner, the only empty chair was at a table with a sour crab. Walter Tetley played Leroy, and Lorene Tuttle played Marjorie. I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the full person. Because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too. Because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart or Frederick March or Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or Leslie Howard. Mm. And on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wished to be, mm -hmm. I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. Weren't you on uh, The Great Gildersleeve at one time? Yes, I was the original Margie. You were? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. uh -huh. For Hal Perry, then. Yes. Was yes, I was on the opening show. And I worked on it for about two and a half years, and then they kept writing Margie younger all the time. Uh -huh. She got to be about 16. And I felt that that was too difficult for me to go out in front of an audience, you know, and try to look 16. So I think I gave my notice on the show. Were you on that pilot show for Johnson's Wax? I expect so. Because they they, it was supposed to be a summer replacement for Johnson's Wax. Uh-huh. And then it, Johnson's decided against Gildersleeve, and then Kraft Foods came in and picked it up. Oh, I see. But well, you, you were know more about it than I do. <laughs> Yell when the ice water hit him in the face. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's time we leave for court, Mr. Gildersleeve. It is? Uh, come on, kids, this won't take long. Well, all I can say is we run things better than this in Whistle Vista. Eleven o'clock and the judge hasn't even shown up yet. Judge Hooker's usually very prompt. Yes, the trouble with some of these judges is they think they're little tin gods. Take those black robes away from them, and what have they got? Bow legs. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, that's a hot one, Uncle Moore. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. Everyone rise, please. Ah, at last. Superior Court, Department 25, the Honorable Hitter H. Hooker Judge Presiding is now in session. Be seated. Sit down, Uncle Moore. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Who's that man sitting in the judge's chair? Why, that's Judge Hooker. Judge Hooker? That's the man in the lower berth. Oh, that's us. Come on, Mr. Gildersleeve. I'm not feeling very well, Ted. Uh, couldn't we postpone this over to another judge? Oh, come on, Uncle Mort. Remember what you said. This guy will be a pushover. Yes, a pushover. Now, oh, come on, come on. Step up. Don't dawdle. I haven't got all day. Make a snappy, folks. The judge is pretty short-tempered this morning. He didn't get any sleep last night. Oh, my. <laughs> Uh, Your Honor, with your permission, I'll put Mr. Gildersleeve on the stand first. Go ahead, Mr. Wills. Yeah. Swear in the witness, Bella. You saw me swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you? I do. <laughs> well, do you or don't you speak up? I do. That voice is very familiar. <laughs> Turn around, Mr. Oh, so it's you. Yes. Uh, hello, Judge. <laughs> Mr. Wills? Yes, Your Honor? I will examine this man's qualifications if you don't mind. I don't, Your Honor. But I do. Silence. <laughs> now then, Gildersleeve, what do you do for a living? I make girdles, Your Honor. <laughs> Order in this court. Order in the court. Yeah. Order in the court. Order. Order. And you, Gildersleeve, any more cheap humor and I'll judge you in contempt. But it's true, Your Honor. I'm the president of the Gildersleeve Girdle Company. Uncle Mort, tell him the truth. He doesn't make girdles, Judge. Yeah. And what does he do? Steel foundations. I bet he would, too. <laughs> now, no more interruptions, my boy. Remember, this is the courtroom. You realize who I am, of course. Sure, you're a bow-legged little tin god. Yeah. What? Oh, Leroy! But, but you just said so yourself, Uncle Morris. Oh, you did. Uh, just a little joke, Your Honor. You know how I kid. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a plain question, and I want a plain answer. Yeah. 
What business are you in? Well, I... Uh, oh, uh, that is... Uh, Leroy, would you mind going out into the hall and get me some, uh, some ice water? One moment. Who's running this court? You or I? Better not get Uncle Mort mad, Judge. Last night he threw a whole bucket of water on a guy in the berth under him. Oh, my. Here we go again. <laughs> he did, did he? Yeah. Thanks, I will. Let's hear all about it, Uncle Mort. But, Judge Hooker, it's after five o'clock. This poor man's been on the witness stand all day. All right, all right. One more question, then I'll hand down my decision. Mr. Gildersleeve, what makes you think that you have executive ability? Well... I have a large staff of my own, and through years of experience, I know the proper relationship between employer and employee. Your Honor. Yes, Mr. Wells? Our firm has thoroughly investigated Mr. Gildersleeve, and we're satisfied as to his qualifications. Uh Mr. Wells, I have great respect for you and your associates. That is probably the only reason why I'm going to grant your petition. However... In order to protect these children from their own misguided enthusiasm, I'm going to require this Gildersleeve to report to me every single week. Uh, But, Your Honor... He must get an okay for every cent that he spends. But, Judge... And I will require him to post a bond of $50,000 in cash. Now, see here, Hooker. (laughs) I won't stand for this. I'll resign. Quiet. Gildersleeve, I never sent for you. You came here begging for this job. To quote from Brawby versus Union Buggy Corporation, Civil Code of Nebraska, you've made your bed and you can't lie out of it. But my business in Wistful Vista... You remain here and make this estate pay or go to jail for contempt. Now, wait a minute. I'm not good... Court is adjourned. I'll kill that old goat. (laughs) Ted, we've got to do something about this. Do you realize that a $50,000 bond would not only take every cent of my ready cash, but also means a mortgage on my Gordel Works? Gee, I'm sorry about how the whole thing went, Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, maybe if we went into the judge's chambers, we could persuade him to lower the bond, Uncle Moore. Sure, just let me talk to him. Young man, you've talked enough for one day. How about it, Ted? Well, it won't hurt to try. Come on. Yeah. Come in. Uh, excuse us, Judge Hooker. Uh... You remember me, don't you? <laughs> I, I thought perhaps maybe we could possibly get that little cash bond reduced. I don't see why I should have... If you spoke to somebody who'd known me for a long time, they might convince you that I'm not such a bad fellow. <laughs> oh, that would be fine, Uncle Mort. Yeah. Who could the judge talk to? Why, uh, the president of the Wistful Vista Chamber of Commerce. He's my next-door neighbor, too. A chap named Fibber McGee. We can call him long distance, Your Honor. <laughs> Yes, yes, I see, Mr. McGee. Yes, I'm glad you put me straight on that. Yes, I knew my little chum would set me in right. That's a very good point. Leroy, I want you to meet McGee one of these days. There's one of nature's noblemen. I guess you've made up my mind for me, Fibber. Yeah, Fibber. <laughs> Hold the phone a second, and I'll tell him. Gildersleeve. Uh, yes, Judge? Gildersleeve, I've decided to rescind that $50,000 bond. Uh... I knew that would happen if you spoke to my little pal. Yes, after talking to McGee, I'm going to make that bond $100,000. What? Give me that telephone. Hello? You're a hard man, McGee. The great Gildersleeve will be with us again in a few minutes. While Uncle Throck recovers from that one, I want to say a word that I believe will make every thinking housewife want to try parquet margarine tomorrow. This delicious new craft product is most popular as a spread for bread and a seasoning for hot cooked foods because of its delicate, pleasing flavor. But the same qualities that make it so good for table use make it an extra fine shortening for baking. I say extra fine because it has all the qualities of an ordinary shortening plus fine flavor and added nourishment. 
Let me read you a statement from Mrs. Lillian Watts, who, having been born and raised on a farm, is mighty particular about food. She says, quote, I have a family of eight, and they all like parquet margarine. I use it in various ways. Cakes, bread, muffins, biscuits, soup, spreads, and other ways too numerous to mention. Thank you a thousand times for this wonderful product. End of quote. Now that's a mighty enthusiastic statement. But you'll be just as enthusiastic once you have tried parquet. It's so delicious, so nourishing, so grand in every way. Tomorrow, be sure to order Parquet, the economical spread made by Kraft. And remember, every pound of Parquet margarine contains 9,000 units of vitamin A. George Leroy, I'm going to show that judge I can run that estate, or my name won't be Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. You bet it won't, Uncle Mort. You won't even have a name. Yeah, no. I'll just have a number. Good night, folks. Original music on tonight's program was composed and conducted by William Randolph. This is Jim Bannon saying goodnight for Kraft and reminding you to tune in again next week at the same time to hear the further adventures of the great Gildersleeve. This is the National Broadcasting Company.